So our scripture reading today is from Luke chapter 22, verses 24 to 38, and it's on, if you're using the Black Bible, you can find it on page 1048. Let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. He said to them, but, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, Look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, It is enough. The grass withers, the flowers fade, and yet the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. So, just to remind us of the setting here, before we get into the details of this passage. This is the end of the Passover meal. It is Thursday night by our accounting, uh, by Hebrew accounting, it's the beginning of the next day, so technically it's the evening of Friday, because evening comes first. Uh, they have finished celebrating Passover, 
Jesus told them that he has been looking forward to this particular Passover for a while. During Passover, Jesus oversees the meal and its sayings and, and liturgies, and he alters some of them in, in odd ways. Rather than saying, this is the bread of affliction which our fathers ate, he says, this is my body given for you. After supper, the cup of redemption or the cup of blessing, he, he takes that cup up and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for you. But then after the meal, he, a shadow seems to fall. Jesus seems more somber, more reflective, and he says, uh, he lets them know, one of you, one of you is going to betray me. One of the twelve closest. One whose hand is right here on the table with me. And so it is from that setting, in that evening, after that meal, that his disciples start to have a conversation about which one of them is the greatest. If you remember that in the book of John, John doesn't actually record the, the, the Last Supper, the, but he records the events that surrounded the Last Supper, that go on during the Last Supper, that begins in John 13, where that Passover meal begins with Jesus washing his disciples' feet. How do you go from having your feet washed by Jesus at the beginning of the meal to arguing about which one of you is the greatest at the end of the meal? How do you go from wondering if it's in you to betray your friend, to wondering if you are at least in one of the top tier of his favorites. How do they do this? How can this be? And what I have discovered is that these disciples though they have been with Jesus for three years, are still sinners. Yeah, it knocked me out of my seat also when I realized it. Any of these uh, scenarios sound familiar to you? You get up Sunday morning, it's the Lord's Day. The next thing on the agenda is worshiping God, singing His praises, being overwhelmed and amazed at the grace that He has displayed to you. But first, 
an explosion at your child. A fight with your sister or brother as you are heading in to worship Jesus. Or maybe you've just had a great time of Scripture reading and prayer. And it ends with a fight with your spouse. Or maybe, like me, you can drive down the road and sing along with the songs of praise, praising God for His mercy and His patience with you. Take a breath and curse out the driver in front of you who is not doing things according to decentness and an orderliness, and then finish the chorus. Absolutely true. I can sing God's praises and curse out someone made in God's image, and it's all in the same breath and go right back to singing God's praises and rarely notice. It's in us. It turns out that the disciples of Christ, since there have been disciples of Christ, remain sinners. One of Pastor Doug's favorite stories about himself, because he was a humble man, was about a time that he went away on like a four or five day prayer and reading retreat just by himself, left his wife and family at home, had a glorious time in God's presence and walked in the door and his teenage son said something that just set him off. And I don't even know, I don't remember if he had even set his bag down before he exploded at his son, who then turned and said to him, well, that didn't take. It's in us. It's in us. We, like, we can't be surprised by the disciples. We can't be shocked by this. Romans 7.21, Paul says, So I find this law, like gravity, this inescapable law at work in me. When I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Like, do you ever fall asleep reading a sports article? No, who, who nods off as they're reading some sport item? You ever fall asleep reading your Bible? I mean, it might be easier to say, have you ever not fallen asleep reading your Bible? Even reading a good Christian book, we might not fall asleep. Man, I turn straight to the Word of God. And now I'm tired. Now I remember a thousand things I should be doing, could be doing, ought to be doing. When I want to do good, sin is right there. And look at the response of Jesus. The disciples are double-minded, easily distracted from the moment. And Jesus is not even swayed. Like, I know we don't get, like, stage directions, but I don't sense an eye roll 
I don't sense a heavy sigh or a huff. Just three things. He gives patient instruction and a kind reminder and a merciful promise. First, he gives patient instruction. First, hey, don't take your cues from the world. One writer says, There is perhaps no subject on which Scripture is less tolerant than that of self-adulation. Isaiah 2 says, The Lord Almighty has a day in store for all the proud and lofty, for all that is exalted. This idea of comparing and sizing up and self-promotion and titles and using and abusing your leadership and positions just to push your agenda or to grow your influence. There was a somewhat famous pastor who said these words at a giant conference for pastors talking about his church. He said, people need to either get on the bus, get off the bus, or get run over by the bus. Because he had a plan. He was building a kingdom. I heard from a, a friend, a pastor, who said to me once, I cannot learn anything from a pastor whose church is smaller than mine. I was like... And my first thought was, Man, I got a lot of people who can mentor me then. <laughs> I've got this book on Audible that, that I've only just started, and it's called The Way of the Dragon or The Way of the Lamb. That Christ's way of leadership is never the way we would like to go. The ridiculousness that Jesus is described as the Lion of Judah who looks like a lamb who, who's been slain. The way of leadership is through weakness and meekness and humility. Jesus says, not so among you as he describes the world's view of strength and leadership and power. He says, not so among you. The, the language could be taken either as indicative or imperative. It could be a, could be a warning, a, a command. Don't let this be. But it also could just be a statement. That's not how it is. That is not how it is with you. The greatest among you must become as the youngest. And this is not in our world today. So, like, remember, their culture did not idolize and seek to embrace all things youthful. All things youthful were useless and to be avoided. You wanted to grow out of that as fast as you could. So it's not us getting more and more arrogant like the children of today. It's saying, no, no, what if... What if we actually admitted children have nothing to offer for quite some time and they are parasites on your bank account for 18 to 32 years? <laughs> you don't want to embrace that. And yet here is Jesus saying, no, the greatest of you. 
embrace youthfulness. Not just ignorance, but like the humility of I have nothing to offer in reality in myself. You know, we can, we understand the second, you know, the, the leader is one who serves. Like that doesn't sound strange to us because like you can write books on that. Servant leadership, like we, we know that's a model that can be embraced. Sometimes people embrace it in order to increase their power though. One thing we don't ever talk about is infant maturity. We see that we can combine servant and leader, but infant and mature, that's what Jesus is saying. You think of yourself as so mature, view yourself as an infant. So he gives this patient instruction, but he gives a kind reminder. He says, listen, who's great? What is greatness anyway? Is the one who reclines at the table greater or the one who serves greater? And he doesn't even wait for an answer. He says, obviously, it's the one who reclines at table. That's the greater one, not the servant. And yet, here I am. But I am among you as the one who serves. And so he gives this reminder, like, we don't even have to go very far back in your memory log. We could just go back to the beginning of supper when I washed your feet. That is what, that is the kind of leader you are to be. It's not, it's not about greatness. It's about service and care. And then an amazing, merciful assessment and promise. He says, now you are the ones who have stayed with me through my trials. You are the ones who have stayed with me through my trials. There's probably not a better succinct description of what a disciple is. One who endures with Christ through trial. Most of the New Testament from Acts on is either pictures of endurance and perseverance or instructions to endure, persevere. And how kind that Jesus says of his disciples, you are the ones who have stood by me through all my trials. Like that's his view of them. And they have certainly stayed with him geographically, but they have not been the greatest of support team for him through these three years. And yet it's true, they have been there. In fact, at one point when Jesus goes on this massive uh, negative growth campaign and drives thousands away from him so that his following goes from 5,000 back to 12, he looks at them and he says, well, what about you? Don't you want to leave? And I love the honesty and desperation of Peter's response because he says, Lord, where would we go? He doesn't say, no, we don't want to leave. He says, uh, where would we go? You alone have the words of life, and we have come to realize 
that you are the Christ. He says, you are the ones who have stayed with me through my trials. And I, and I promise, I assign to you a kingdom as my father assigned to me. Here's some fun. The verb is the verb form of covenant. Jesus literally says to his disciples, and I covenant to you what my father covenanted to me, a kingdom. We learn that there was a a covenant, an agreement between the Father and the Son before any of this even happened. And now Jesus is bringing his disciples in and saying, and that covenant is for you. He says, you will, there's intimacy involved. You will sit at table with me. And there's glory involved. You will sit on thrones. To the 12, he's saying, you're going to sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. By the way, kind of ruling out any idea that the church is a cut and paste reaction to Israel. That the church is God's decision after Israel rejected Jesus. Here is the church, the 12 apostles, the fathers of the church. And he's saying, when you get to heaven, you are going to sit on thrones judging the church? No. All the new Christians? No. The 12 tribes of Israel. The New Testament church does not replace Israel. We have been grafted in, as Paul says. We are part of God's plan. And he says, here, you you will reign. You will rule in my kingdom. And Jesus essentially says, you have been with me in my trials. And now I promise I will be with you in yours. And he begins to address Simon and to speak of Satan. Simon, Simon. It's interesting to do a little study of, you know, when Jesus first met Simon, he immediately told him, you know, your name's going to be Peter, which seems random, but... Jesus is allowed to do that. Later, we find out from Jesus that all of us have a secret name written on a white stone that only Jesus knows. This is in Revelation. So I think when he met Simon, he knew he was meeting his best friend. And he said, Simon, hey, you're Peter. I'm sorry. I was not supposed to tell you that. (laughs) But I just couldn't wait. I couldn't wait. I just wanted you to know you're Peter. You're a rock. You are so stubborn. But I mean, also in a good way, but also, oh, and so here's Peter. But then to look at the times that Jesus addresses Peter, but doesn't call him Peter. And there's always a reason. Because he wants him to remember where he came from. Remember that he is still Simon right now. So here, Simon, Simon. Even in the restoration at John 21, he says, Simon, 
son of Jonah. So, how did all those commitments go for you? Do you love me more than the rest of these? He's like, I love you. But here, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Simon, Simon, the double name it's a, is an indication of either urgency or intimacy or of affection or sorrow or of all four of them put together. There's urgency and intimacy and affection and sorrow as he addresses him, Simon, Simon. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. Now, this is interesting. Jesus' ministry begins with a conflict with Satan. And his entire ministry, he's in conflict with Satan. And it is now at the culmination. Will he truly die for the sins of the world? The conflict with Satan could not get any stronger. And now that conflict with Satan is overflowing to be a conflict between his followers and Satan. In this verse, verse 31, both of those yous are y'alls. So Jesus is addressing Simon, but what he is literally saying is, Satan has asked to sift all of you like wheat. Satan has asked to have all of you that he may sift all of you like wheat. Satan's hatred is not just singularly focused toward Peter. This is his desire for every follower of Christ. If we think that we are somehow immune to Satan's attacks, to Satan's hatred, if not even the twelve who were with Jesus during his entire three-year ministry, if not even they are immune to Satan's attacks, how, how would we be immune to that? Jesus says, but I. It's another one of those, if it weren't a little blasphemous passages that we could preach on all the buts of God. Jesus says, but I have prayed for you. And from here on, it's singular. But I have prayed for you, Peter. So that your faith, Peter, may not fail. And so that when you, Peter, have turned back, restore your brothers. Strengthen your brothers. This is too clever for me to claim for myself, but it's too clever not to pass on to you. So while Satan is preying on Peter, Jesus is praying for Peter. 
Isn't it amazing to read this and realizing, to realize sinning doesn't mean you've, your faith has failed. I mean, Jesus says specifically, when you have turned back, when you have turned, when you have repented, when you have come back to me, strengthen your brothers. Sinning does not mean your faith has failed. It means you're still a sinner. He says, strengthen your brothers. Don't not hope that your brothers will receive you again. Not hope that your brothers will listen to you again. He says, strengthen your brothers. They too are being sifted like wheat. They also are going to feel miserable. Because you're all going to fall away. Peter will be knocked down, but not knocked out. This is how one writer puts it, how instructive that the one ordained to strengthen Jesus' followers will not be strong and invincible, but weak and fallen. Usefulness in the kingdom, even leadership in the church, does not depend on perfection, but on a journey inward and a journey outward, on returning to Jesus and strengthening the faith of others. It's incredible. Peter still can't really see. He's not picking up entirely what Jesus is laying down. He can't see that it is in him as much as it is in you and me to fall away. He says, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. And Jesus says, Peter, I'm telling you, the rooster won't crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Luke is the only one who adds that more intimate phrase because in all the other gospels they record that you'll, you'll deny me. You'll deny me. Three times you'll deny me. He's, Luke makes it a much more intimate thing. You will deny that you know me. Remember, it is nighttime. This isn't even a 24-hour warning. Roosters crow before the dawn. You're not even going to get through this night, Peter, without falling. It is easy to boast of our great plans and feats for God when we are surrounded by friends and in the upper room. And it's interesting to see Peter as the example who as as loudly as he boasts that he would never abandon Jesus he just as loudly 
almost screams, I don't know him. Do you ever... Do you ever wonder what rooster crows, what effect those would have on Peter for the rest of his days? I mean, that would not be the last rooster he heard. Do you ever think about that? Like, what would that do? Are there things... Are there things in your life that you have to avoid? Places. Because they remind you just too strongly of how. Every morning before the sun rose, sometimes Nearby and sometimes a far-off echo, Peter would hear the crowing of a rooster. What would he think of? What would that bring? And I don't think I'm far off in saying that he would have thought of his sin and his Savior, that every rooster crowing would remind him of his sin for certain and of his Savior who knew beforehand he was going to do this and said, when you come back, strengthen your brothers. He would have felt the depth of of his depravity and the height of his deliverance. Have you ever felt sifted by Satan? Or maybe to move out of the agrarian metaphors. Do you ever feel like Satan has your number and it's on his favorites list? then know these three absolute truths. Jesus prays for you. Jesus guards you. And Jesus always receives you when you return. Hebrews 7.25 Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is able to save to the uttermost all of those who come to him, because he lives to pray for you. Romans 8.34, who can condemn you? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, he was raised. He is at the right hand of God and indeed is interceding for us.
I suspected this. We'll look at knapsacks and knives next Sunday. But that's good. Because this is a good place to stop and meditate. That Christ is not for you because of how well you are for him. Christ is for you. He's praying for you. He is guarding you. And he loves to receive you back when you return. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus. You love us. You love us because you choose to love us. Even in all our unloveliness, even in all our fickleness, even in all our ridiculous boastings, you love us. Thank you that you receive us always when we return. Help us to be ambassadors of reconciliation. Help us to be those who are incredibly amazed at your kindness to us so that we could restore our brothers and sisters, strengthen their faith. In Jesus' name, amen.